drive the dreams he had away He wanted to believe In the hands of love Uh, few things stress me out quite like preaching. For a variety of reasons, however, I feel that I'm called to it. That uh, Jesus has said to me, kind of like he said to Peter, Peter, feed my sheep. Usually I feel like I have nothing to say and everything is black. And then it feels sometimes like God reveals a little bit of himself to me and everything is white. 
And then I panic because I think, God, how on earth am I supposed to say that? How am I supposed to talk about you? I, I can't talk about you. Sometimes it, it feels like the sermon goes poorly. Like I work so hard and I, and I just can't do God justice. Kind of felt a little bit like that last week when I preached about surrendering all of our moments because God makes all of our moments new. And then afterwards, I really, really had a hard time surrendering that, that moment. And sometimes I feel like the sermon goes uh, really well and someone will say, that was exactly, that was exactly what I needed to hear. And for like a, a second or two, I have this, this thrill, like, oh, that's incredible. And then I panic thinking, oh God, I hope they don't expect that again next week. <laughs> I don't have anything to say. I don't have anything to give. Wake up in the middle of the night to this terrifying, terrifying question. Hey, Peter, how are you going to feed the sheep? Hey, Peter, how are you going to inspire the staff and the board? Hey, Peter, what are you going to say to that couple that wants a divorce? Hey, Peter, how, how are you going to buy enough bread to feed everyone? Sometimes I think about role models that I like to emulate, like my old friend Tim. Tim has been just about everywhere that I have been, only a few years before I got there. He would come and speak at our high school youth group in the late 70s. He was the leader of the CSU Fellowship in Fort Collins, uh, when I was a student at the University of Colorado, I spoke there a couple times, and he was the high school director at Bel Air Presbyterian Church before I was, before I took his position a few years, few years later. I still remember my youth elder saying to me, saying, man, Peter, I'm telling you, that Tim Brewer, he just had a a silver tongue, a silver tongue. And I remember thinking, dang, I, I wish that I was more like Tim. Tim was a great communicator. He's also a really great guy. Kind, compassionate, sincere, warm. He became a senior pastor in my denomination a few years uh, before I became a senior pastor. He had a wife and three children. Two of them were handicapped. In 1995, I spent a little bit of time with him and also my old friend Johnny Patterson at the General Assembly of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Tim had recently lost a foot in an accident hiking through a train tunnel. So at the General Assembly, everybody prayed for him and he came forward in front of everybody while they all stood and gave him a standing ovation. He spoke some words, just beautiful words. I looked in the General Assembly notebook and saw that his congregation had grown to like 1,300 in average attendance, and I was jealous. Four weeks after the assembly, Tim was on vacation with his family at Hilton Head Island. One day in early August, Tim got up and he left his family and he went home alone to St. Louis. I guess he wrote a letter, and then he went down to the garage, ran a hose from the tailpipe of his car to the interior, turned on the ignition, and asphyxiated himself, leaving behind a wife, 
three children and a very confused congregation. He left a letter for his church and it was sent to all his fellow pastors in the denomination as a public letter and in the letter he apologizes and asks for forgiveness. I'll read just a few lines. He writes, I know of nothing which any of you could have done to change my situation. Out of the countless sins that I have committed in this life, it is my own wretched weakness of which I am most ashamed. God forgive me for not being any stronger than I am. Forgive me for being such an unfaithful shepherd. But never doubt that God's word remains true even if the messenger has fallen. Upon that one hope I have staked my entire life. Yours in the name of our blessed Lord, our only hope in life and death, Tim. I think Tim was haunted by a voice. And the voice would say, Tim, how are you going to feed the sheep? How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to make it all work? I suspect Bruce McBog was haunted by the same voice. Some of you know Bruce. He was part of our church, actually. I got to know Bruce when I spent a night with him sleeping on the streets of Denver. Bruce had an amazing testimony. In his youth, he uh, shot and killed a police officer. In prison, he met Jesus. And years later, he founded Christ's Body Ministries. He's ministered to thousands on the streets of Denver and to, to some of you, I imagine. Five years ago, he hung himself from the balcony in his home. Like Tim, I love Bruce. He was an amazing and beautiful man, but I know he struggled with that question. How are you going to feed the sheep, Bruce? I bet you know the question. How are you going to feed your family? How are you going to raise the kids? How are you going to provide for all of your employees? Uh, how are you going to speak life into the people that uh, you are surrounded with? How are you going to create life in the image of God? How are you going to do it? John chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing upon the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, Passover, this is really huge. It's, it's Passover time. Remember this. Um, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus asked, where are we to buy bread, Philip? Not, where are you to buy bread, Philip? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. To test him, parazo in Greek, normally translated tempt. 
Scripture says that God tempts no one to evil, and yet it seems pretty clear here that Jesus tempts his disciples to good. He tests them. But I don't think it's so that he can find out what will happen, for it says that he already knew what he was going to do. Perhaps he wants them to like really know something, you know, not just up here with their head, but down here in their heart. Perhaps he wants them to experience something. Maybe he wants you to experience something. Have you ever wondered about that, why he doesn't just send you the manual, you know? Because the Bible is not simply a manual. It's like a guidebook for going on a journey or something, maybe, but he wants you to experience something, maybe like death and resurrection every moment. Well, anyway, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Philip, you see, is practical. He does the math. 200 denarii was like 30,000 bucks. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here, and he's got five barley loaves. Five is penta in Greek. That should be familiar. Um, Pentecost is the harvest feast. It's the 50th day after Passover. That's seven weeks of seven days. Seven, seven, sevens of 50. There's a boy who has penta, five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. In the uh, Synoptic Gospels, it's recorded he had them sit in, in groups. Now, this is fascinating. This is, the only, this is the only miraculous sign that's recorded in all four Gospels outside of the, the resurrection. Jesus said, have the people sit down in groups. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about pente thousand in number. That's fifteen to 20,000 People. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, eucharisteo in Greek is where we get the word Eucharist. When he had given Eucharist, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, their stuff, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing, nothing may be lost. Apolumi in Greek. It's also translated perished as well as lost. He wills that no broken bread be lost. Some say that if you commit suicide, you're lost. And I suppose that you are. But I wonder if any of those fragments, fragments of broken bread, if any of those were in Tim, or Bruce. I saw those guys eat them. And they don't stay lost. Later in this chapter, Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose, Apollumi, nothing of all that he has given me. How much has God given the son? John 13, 3. All things. That's what it says. You can read it. Nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Well, if Tim and Bruce were given to Jesus, will he raise them up on, on, on the last day? And why, why, why? Why do we think Jesus ever stops seeking and saving the lost? Apolumi. Why do we think he stops? We do. But does he? Who is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. Well, whatever the case, we, we don't want to be lost. Don't want to be lost at all. Not even for for a moment. Uh, but uh, Jesus says, "Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost." So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of, of broken bread from the pente barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, "This indeed is the prophet who is to come into the." world I mean check it out in the wilderness Jesus feeds the multitude with manna and meat and now he asked me Peter how are we going to feed those people down at the sanctuary and you know what I hear at three in the morning Peter how are you going to feed those people down at the sanctuary. And Satan whispers, yeah, Peter, how are you gonna feed those folks at the sanctuary? And he hopes I'll answer, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but you just watch me try. I think Jesus wants to hear me say, I can't. But you can, so we can. Philip did the math and said, we can't. Andrew said, well, we do have this kid and, and he's got a, a lunch, but what is that among so many? What, what is that? What was that? Well, that was, what that was, was all that Jesus needed. And all that Jesus needed was just all that they had. Now, I suppose that in reality, Jesus didn't actually need anything. I mean, he could have just created a Burger King and a strip mall ex nihilo on the spot, right? But he didn't. He chooses to use what is given. And, and what is given by one of the very ones that he's fixing to feed. He chooses to use everyone that day and yet notice that it wasn't Philip's lunch, it wasn't Andrew's lunch that he, he multiplied. He multiplied this little boy's lunch and used Philip and Andrew to do so. In fact, he used them and the disciples like servants waiting on tables. They each had a basket filled with fragments left over. In that society, in that day, you see the waiters lived on what was left over, the fragments that, that were left, the servants. So my job and Francis's job is to facilitate all of us in feeding each other as God multiplies our stuff. We all give this stuff and God God multiplies this stuff, but you see, the picnic is everyone's business. Maybe that's because Jesus wants us to share in his joy. And he just loves throwing parties. Well, Jesus points out, Philip, Philip, you, you, you cannot feed 20,000 people, but give what you have. Andrew, little boy, all of you, give, give what you have, and I will multiply it. I will make the banquet. And so this is point number one. Give what you have, and God makes the banquet. Go to church. Even more, go, go to house church, particularly house church or something like it, 
and sit down in groups. Uh, perhaps uh, even form a small group. I mean, don't wait for your house church pastor or whatever to get, but just grab some people and form a small group. And, and I mean, just get together for lunch or dinner or breakfast every now and then or go bowling. But uh, somewhere along the line, sit down in groups and give what you have. Uh, money, insight, gifts, talents, perspective, your testimony, and Jesus multiplies it and makes a banquet. Give what you have. And yet, what do you give when you have nothing? You see, I think Tim felt like he had nothing. I think Bruce felt like he had nothing. So this is point number two. When you have nothing to give, give your nothing. You see, that is precisely what Philip was unprepared to, to give, his nothing. He said, nothing can be done, for we have nothing to give. Ironically, when we have nothing to give, at last, everything can be done. He said, we have, we have nothing to give. At least Andrew came along and said, well, here's nothing. It's all we've got, but, but here it is, nothing. Just five loaves, barley loaves, and two little fish. You know, it's easier to share your something than your nothing. It's easier to share your strength than your weakness. It's easier to share your wealth than your poverty. And you see, this, in fact, was Poverty, shared poverty. John points out that the fish were opsarion, little fish like sardines, and that the loaves were barley loaves. Barley was the food of the poor. The rabbis said barley bread is the food of the beasts. Five barley loaves and two little fish given by a piderion. That can be translated little boy or perhaps even little slave boy. Little slave boy. The boy's lunch was poverty. And that's what Jesus multiplies. The boy's lunch was poverty, but Jesus produces an abundance from shared poverty. You ever been to a party where everyone displays their wealth? You have, haven't you? Just sucks. You ever been to a party, though, where everyone admits that they're poor? Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. Last night I went to a party. Everyone admired my wit and sophistication. All agreed that I was most entertaining. And I returned to my apartment, closed the door, held a gun in my hands, and thought about blowing my brains out. For you see, a party like that is death. But shared poverty, shared poverty is like a, a banquet of grace. Some years ago, folks took a survey uh, in London, a survey of elderly citizens, and they asked them to name the happiest period in their life. 60% answered the blitz. That was the time during World War II when Nazi planes dropped tons of explosives on London every night. And these people would huddle together in small groups in bomb shelters while they listened to the sound of all their earthly possessions being destroyed by fire from above. 
happiest period of their lives. Before we moved back to Colorado, we lived in a, in a little house on the side of the church where I worked. And we had one little bathroom among five of us. Two of that five were learning how to use it. <laughs> I distinctly remember one morning just before we moved to Colorado and our luxurious new house with three toilets and five sinks. I remember this one morning in California. As usual, I was sitting on the throne. John was on one knee, Elizabeth was on the other knee, and we were reading, Where's Waldo? As Susan put on her makeup at the sink right next to us, and Becky crawled around the floor looking for things to put in her mouth. And I remember distinctly, suddenly, I had this thought. Wow. I'm really gonna miss this place. The abundance of shared poverty. <laughs> you know that's what an AA meeting is? An abundance of shared poverty. That's what a real church is. An abundance of shared poverty. And that's what suicide is not. Suicide is poverty that's not shared. A moment of poverty unsurrendered. Ironically, it's refusing to die by seizing control of your own death, refusing to die to yourself, like Bill Mayer said. Um, suicide is our way of saying to God, you can't fire me, I quit. <laughs> You see, suicides won't surrender control of their death, for they re feel responsible for their life. But surrendered death, surrendered poverty is life. It's the start of the great banquet. As a new pastor, a youth pastor in California, I led this small group of high school boys in a Bible study every week, and it was brutal. It was just organized death. I mean, if you've ever worked with kids, you know it was, you know, I don't know. It's just death. And, and I shared every talent, every gift, every brilliant insight I had, and, and it, it was still dead until one evening when it came time to share prayer requests. As usual, the uh, requests had to do with things like, you know, chemistry tests and relatives with the flu until we got to Brian Millar, the kid that I thought never paid attention. Brian paused for a moment, and then he said, sometimes I feel like killing myself. It was the greatest gift he could have given. And he gave it. I mean, he, he, he didn't give it in order to control the group, uh, didn't use it to gain control. He didn't expect us to fix it. He, he just gave it. He just gave his poverty, his thoughts of death. And, and our group, our group all of a sudden absolutely came to life. I, I mean, it was like the blood of Christ flowed out of those other boys into Brian and then back out of Brian into those boys. We became a body. Last I heard, Brian was doing mission work somewhere in 
Southeast Asia, the abundance of shared poverty. Have you been to the website postsecrets.com? Have you been to that? Or anybody read the books? They publish them, they're out in the, in the bookstore. It's pretty cool. In 2004, this fellow named Frank invited strangers to, uh, quote, artistically share their deepest secret, put it on a postcard, and mail it anonymously to him. Since then, one half million postcards have arrived in Frank Bourne's mailbox. Most of them are shared poverty. I think the biblical term for that is confession. People are desperate to share their confessions. For when you hold on to secrets, they eat away at your soul and they feed the evil one who inhabits those secrets. But when you share those secrets, you share those confessions, you see, it is a wild hope, a wild and crazy hope that maybe, maybe, maybe someone will love you in that place of deepest shame. Well, here are, here are a few. I wanted to show you a few. Here's one. It says this. I always say that I don't believe in God. No one knows that I pray to him every night. Dear God, don't let me die alone. Here's another. When I was a little kid, some girl on the bus asked me if I believed in Jesus. I said no. Now every time I pass a school bus, I can still hear her say, then Jesus is going to send you to hell. Here's another one. When my friends go on diets, I discourage them. This is because I really just want them to be fatter than me. <laughs> I understand. For some reason, this is another one, for some reason when people talk about Jesus, I picture Waldo in my head. That, that kind of makes sense. Where's Waldo? Where's Jesus? How about this one? I use a bracelet of Jesus to hide my cutting scars. How about this one? You can see it kind of up in the corner. You can barely read it. I am lost. Check this one out. Actually, it's a letter that was sent to Frank. Listen closely to this. Uh, this person writes, Dear Frank, I have made six postcards, all with secrets that I was afraid to tell the one person I tell everything to, my boyfriend. This morning, I planned to mail them, but instead, I left them on, on a pillow next to his head while he was sleeping. 10 minutes ago, he arrived at my office and asked me to marry him, and I said yes. See, here's a real shocker for our terrified little souls, and that is that even though Jesus hates sin, he finds confessed sin profoundly attractive. He finds our surrendered shame to be deeply sexy. For you see, he is the great bridegroom, and in that place of shame, he produces fruit, which is life, the beginning of the banquet of life, the great banquet of life, the abundance of shared poverty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a banquet, it's a party. I remember Bruce McBog hugging, uh, I remember Bruce hugging crazy old bag ladies at the bus stop. 
I remember him speaking to winos in the park. And it was just absolutely beautiful. You see, I think he spoke from those deep places of pain, decades of pain, and his poverty of spirit. And the love that he displayed was just a banquet of grace. I remember him speaking to bag ladies and winos in the park. And I remember him speaking to me about time management courses and business seminars that he had developed and wanted to offer. You see, I think he saw me as a success. And with me, he wanted to share his strength. But that strength was weak. And his weakness was so incredibly strong. I don't know, but I suspect that in a moment, the enemy blinded my friend Bruce to that incredible truth the abundance of shared poverty. Bruce's strength could feed no one. But with Bruce's poverty, Jesus fed thousands. Bruce's poverty is Christ's body broken. It still is Christ's body ministries. In Tim's suicide note, he wrote this. When a minister becomes depressed, there are a few places he can turn for help at least not without ruining his ministry. Maybe so. But maybe surrendered depression could become his ministry, be his ministry. At General Assembly that year, he told my friend Johnny, I've never felt weaker in all my life. And Johnny said, well, Tim, why don't you go to the elders? And Johnny told me that Tim replied this way, I've seen what they do to the weak. They'll crucify me. Now, that's, that's probably not true. And yet those things do happen. But suppose it did. Is crucifixion the end of life or just the beginning? I think it must be, according to Scripture, a shared poverty that results in the great banquet. Not the end, but really just the beginning. Well, perhaps you shouldn't share your poverty or confess your sins to, to just anyone. Not everyone sees their value. Yet even if the swine trample your pearls and nail you to a cross, surrendered poverty does not return void, at least not when it's surrendered to God in Jesus' name. And that's point number three. Give your poverty in Jesus' name. Confess your sins in Jesus' name. You know, if that boy had just given his fish and loaves to the 5,000, said, here, y'all, here's, here's my fish and loaves and given them out of guilt and shame, well, that might be nice, but they'd still all go home hungry. He gave his lunch in faith, hope, and love to Jesus. And everyone went home stuffed to the gills. To give in the name of Jesus is to give to the Jesus who lives in the one to whom you confess your sins. You see, your confessed weakness draws grace out of the one to whom you confess. Your surrendered poverty produces wealth through, through another. I mean, you felt it. Even while we were reading some of those post-secret cards, didn't you feel it? Compassion? 
mercy, grace, kindness, love? Did you want to just hug them and say, oh, you're not lost? That's Jesus rising in you. It draws the life of Jesus out of another, the blood of Christ out of another, the great bridegroom rising in another. Give your poverty in the name of Jesus and you give to Jesus rising within another person. And you give Jesus to them. I mean, Jesus is just all over the place. You give Jesus to them. You give Jesus to them. Not your gifts, abilities, talents, strengths, not your, yourself. You give Jesus. You testify to Jesus. Jesus inhabits your weakness. He shines in your darkness. His glory is revealed through your surrendered failure and sin. In fact, you really can't share Jesus without sharing your own poverty. You can't testify to the Savior unless you also testify to the fact that you need saving. You cannot sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, unless you also sing to save the wretch like me. Like me. Grace, Tim wrote. It is my own wretched weakness for which I'm most ashamed. And yet his own wretched weakness is where Christ is most gloriously proclaimed. Do you see why Satan tempts you so desperately to hide your shame? Because that's where Jesus is glorified. Paul wrote, I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses. In 2 Corinthians 11, he lists those weaknesses. In verse 28, he writes this. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches. That question, how will I feed the sheep? Anxiety. And Paul's the one that says, anxiety is a sin. Anxiety for all the churches. And next line, who is weak and I'm not weak? Who gets tripped up and I don't get angry, furious? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. The power of Christ, what is that? Body broken and bloodshed. Love poured out grace. Paul writes, we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God. Treasure in clay pots. Hide the cracked pots and you hide Jesus. Treasure in earthen vessels. We have this treasure in barley loaves and little fish and peasant boys. We have this treasure wrapped in weakness. You see, I think Tim really believed that most of the time. But for a time, perhaps only a moment, Tim listened to the accuser. And the evil one said, Tim, you have nothing to give. So stop giving. Meanwhile, Jesus calls, Tim, give yourself. Give your nothing, and you will discover you're giving me. And that's number four. Give Jesus. He is an abundance of shared poverty. 
2 Corinthians 8, 9, listen to this. For you, have the great, for, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God has a weakness, did you know that? Yeah. His name is Jesus. He is God's love for you. His heart for you. It makes God vulnerable to you, weak. Ephesians 2, 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, like a slave boy. He chose to become weak so we would see his heart and surrender to his love, for he is love. And on the cross, he became weak for us. He absorbed all our weakness, all our poverty, all our sin. And what did he do with it? He surrendered it to his Father, who is love. He became nothing, and he surrendered our nothing. But that is not nothing. That is faith, hope, and love, and God is love. So that is not nothing. That, in fact, is everything. When the little boy gave his poverty, gave his nothing, he gave the greatest something, faith, hope, and love. I think he gave the very spirit of Jesus. In other words, the spirit of Jesus inhabited that offering of weakness and turned it into Pentecost. Check this out. Jesus was crucified in weakness, right? He is the seed sown in weakness, but raised in power. On Passover, Jesus surrendered his weakness like a seed. He gave up his spirit on the cross. Remember that? It's the end of John. He gave up his spirit on Passover, on Pentecost, 50 days, Pente, 50 days after Passover, his spirit filled the church with resurrection power. That gift of Pente, five barley loaves, looks like nothing. And yet that nothing, contains the harvest feast that is Pentecost. You see, this story, and all of John chapter six, as we'll see over the next few weeks, it's all about Passover, which turns into Pentecost. All about Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is communion, and yet from the other side of the table is the great banquet. It's all about shared poverty, which turns into the abundance of the new creation. And, and I tell you what, I expect to see Tim there. I do. And I expect to see Bruce there. For Jesus shared in their poverty so they, they could share forever in his wealth. What I'm saying is I suspect that they will not stay lost. And I expect to see them there at the feast on that day. And yet that day is now when we surrender our poverty in Jesus' name. Every moment you can consume your poverty in fear, which is death. Or you can surrender your poverty to the hands of love, which is life. He wanted to believe in the hands of love. We desperately need to believe in the hands of love. And so on the night that Jesus was surrendered, paro didomai in Greek, 
which was also the day that Jesus surrendered parodidomai, his spirit, John 19.30, surrendered his spirit to the Father. The day that Jesus surrendered himself into the hands of love, he, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant, eternal covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. Well, like I was saying, I don't know how to feed the sheep. I don't have enough smarts. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough ability. But I got this. And you got this. And hey, did you, did you remember? Do you remember it wasn't until Peter had surrendered his poverty through bitter tears after the resurrection by the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't until then that Jesus said, Peter, feed my sheep. And so this morning, come to the table and surrender your poverty. And then, feed the sheep. We're going to do that this morning. We're going to feed the sheep with Jesus. And this is how you're going to do it. We're going to do communion a little bit differently, okay? So there's going to be three stations. And when you come forward, you're going to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup. All the cups are juice this morning. And if you don't want to do this, that's fine. You can stay kind of where you are. But, all, but I hope you come forward. All the cups, all the cups are, are, are juice. And tear it off, and then you're going to turn around, and you're going to feed the person behind you. What are you gonna feed him with? The broken body of Jesus that descends into your very heart, okay? And then that person, you're gonna come forward, tear a piece of bread, turn around and feed the person behind you. And it may get messy, it may get confusing, but that's what life is like in a body that's coming together, okay? And also, for the first, uh, for the first people now, the people, the communion servers, listen up. You're gonna tear off that piece of bread, uh, one of you's gonna to have to hold both of the things, okay? And you're gonna give it to the first person in line. And then the last person in line, you need to feed the communion servers, all right? And so everybody gets fed. And uh, Jesus multiplies our stuff, especially our weakness, into an abundance of shared poverty called the church. In Jesus' name, let's worship, all right? So if you ever wonder, what's church? That was it, what you just saw. Now that was a sacrament. So it was substance, but it was also sign, a representation of what every relationship um, is supposed to look like in the church. This is your assignment. You just go home and you think about what you just saw, what you just gave 
to another person. And what you just received from another person, and that's the church. Blow your mind if you really think about it. And sometimes people will ask me, they'll say, okay, uh, pastor dude, I'm new to this church. What would you like me to give? What can I give? What am I supposed to do? And if you've been around here a little bit, you know that we need all kinds of things, okay? Um, Money, time, all sorts of stuff. But the reality is that most of all, we need this. I mean, I mean this in all seriousness. I mean, first, that you surrender your poverty to God. But secondly, that you go to house church or you grab some people here. I mean, it doesn't have to be house church, but it needs to be some other people. It doesn't even have to be in this body. But you grab them, and somewhere in your life, somewhere along the line, you sit down in groups, and you surrender to them your poverty. You share your poverty. For you see, that's how the body comes together, how the body is built. It is an abundance of shared poverty. Um, If we can help you do that, great. Go form a small group, do whatever. But give Jesus to the person next to you and receive Jesus from the person next to you. Believe the gospel, for it is an abundance of shared poverty that never ends. In Jesus' name, amen.